Please stand as you're able for the reading from God's Word. Today's epistle lesson is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who, in every respect, has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is subject to weakness. And because of this, he must offer sacrifice for his own sins, as well as for those of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, having been designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Meryl, thank you so much for reading our lesson, and grace and peace to all of you in the name of Christ. Uh, it is so, so good to be in worship with you. We're in kind of a transitional moment uh, with our, all of our commencing and graduating. Uh, we had a, a graduation yesterday here in the sanctuary for FRA, Franklin Road Academy, and there were about a thousand well-wishers uh, for those students who were part of this uh, great day. And of course, Overton graduated this week, next week, uh, BA and Brentwood High School and Ravenwood and all the rest. And just a word of, of gratitude and thanksgiving uh, to all of our graduates. We're so proud of you. Uh, last 
Sunday, they were lined here at the altar at 8.30, and we're so grateful to them. And we pray for the parents as well, the family members in this transition. Uh, my friend uh, Brent Van Hook is with us today. He's a colleague in ministry, one of our Nazarene pastors. In fact, there's a whole row of Van Hooks that are here today, and we welcome you. You would think that one of you is joining the church today with all of you that are here. And we look forward to that as well. It's great to be with all of you. And of course, those of you who are online with us, it means a great deal just to be present with you. We sense your presence with us. And more importantly, we sense the presence of Christ among us as we worship today. I appreciate so much the music this morning. Wasn't it wonderful, the music today? And, um, and also, let me just thank uh, the musical chairs. Those of you who are able to sing and play at the same time is just an amazing thing for one who can't walk and chew gum. So we're grateful to all of you. We're continuing our series that we started last week on the book of Hebrews called Anchored. Or as I said last week, I would prefer to call it Anchor Down, but I don't want to offend my big orange people here. Um, anchored. The theme verse for all of this, of course, is Hebrews 6, verse 19. In fact, we have it on the screen. I invite you to read it with me. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It is safe and sure and goes through the curtain of the heavenly temple into the inner sanctuary. On our behalf, Jesus has gone there before us and become our high priest forever. That's our anchor. There's a lot of human anchors here this morning, including Kay Harvey, one of our own, who is back with us for a funeral this week for Marjorie Mayer. We have a lot of anchors in the room today. I want to review a moment before we get to the text with you. We talked about last Sunday that this particular epistle is not so much a letter as it is a sermon. In fact, the writer, it may have been Apollos, it could have been Silas, it may have been Paul or someone else. The author himself describes this document in chapter 13 of Hebrews as a word of exhortation. And that word in the Greek is paraklesis, which literally means encouragement. And by the way, I hope that you're encouraged when you leave here today. And more than that, I hope that you will encourage someone else who's on the pew beside you, in front of you, or behind you. Exhortation, encouragement. The initial recipients of this message were second generational Jewish Christians. They were ethnic Jews. That's why they call it the book of Hebrews. Messianic Jews who in the late first century were now struggling to just hold on to their faith, struggling to maintain their witness. They were under intense pressure culturally. Uh, not just from the government, but from the synagogue as well. The synagogue was branding these Messianic Jews as heretics. And Caesar was branding them as unpatriotic. They were under intense pressure. They were being harassed and ridiculed merely because of their confession in Jesus. And as a result, many of them are now losing their grip. In fact, chapter 10, verse 25 says that attendance in their gatherings is waning. Chapter 12 says their hands are drooping and listen, their knees are wobbly. 
In other words, let me give you the revised chapel version. They are spiritually and emotionally drained. They're exhausted. They're suffering from compassion fatigue. And like many of us, they are in need of exhortation. They're in need of some encouragement. I was reading an article recently about the great resignation. You know what I'm talking about. It's a term that was coined by Anthony Klotz, who is a professor of management and business at Texas A&M, the great resignation. He coined it. It's a phenomenon that occurred during the pandemic in which workers and employees realized their discontentment with their working environment. And consequently, millions resigned their positions. In fact, I read that in 2021 alone, 68.7 million left their positions. The article goes on to say, however, that the great resignation has now become the great regret. In fact, there's one survey that says 80% of those who quit their jobs in search of greener pastures now are sorry that they left. And they learned what many of us have learned before, that sometimes greener grass may just be a septic tank issue. <laughs> when the going gets tough, they say, the tough get going. But sometimes when the struggle is real, the tough just leave. Something similar is happening in this text, I think. These Christians, many of them, because of the chaos that they're going through, are on the verge of resignation. Not vocationally, but in terms of their faith. What I want you to notice, however, is the preacher, the writer in this text, isn't calling for the congregation to get a stiff upper lip. The preacher is not saying to them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The preacher is not saying, get into positive thinking. That itself can be a form of denial, don't you think? And so the preacher here is not denying the reality of their struggle, but he's pointing them to the source of hope. He's pointing them beyond the problem to the presence of Christ. He reassures them that the shifting currents of human affairs that seem so random and chaotic are in truth graciously presided over by the divine son. Notice I didn't say controlled or caused by the son, presided over. There are some things that happen. There are some tragic things that happen. You can't blame God for that. That was me. That, that was us. Some of the violence that we're saying. Will of God? Of course not. But in the midst of all this struggle and chaos, presiding over us is Jesus. After all, says the writer, he is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's our anchor. I was in the emergency room earlier this week at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital visiting someone and there was, a, there was a desk manager there that was running the firm very well, I might add. I don't remember her name, but I remember she had a button on her lapel that said, 
coordinator of chaos. And I thought, uh, welcome to my world. I need me one of those buttons. When you think about the work of God in the beginning, making order out of the chaos. In the midst of struggle, in the midst of chaos, this preacher is pointing them to God incarnate. Jesus, who, by the way, fully human and fully divine. And in the first three chapters, it's really interesting in Hebrews, he's, he's emphasizing the divinity of Jesus. But in chapters four and following, he's now highlighting the humanity of Jesus. The incarnation of God reveals a God, get this, who is downwardly mobile, who doesn't wait for us to ascend to him. He comes down to us. God becomes like us that we might become like God. By the way, this is what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. Other religions are a human attempt to reach God, but the gospel is God's attempt to reach us. You see this in, in what for me is a life verse. This is Philippians 2, 5 and following. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant, becoming obedient even unto death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him so that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will no longer be wobbly and every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. The law of the incarnation is different from the law of gravity. The law of gravity says what goes up must come down. But the gospel, the law of incarnation says what comes down will go up. If you want to be first, you become last. You want to be a leader, you become a servant. You want to be great, you humble yourself. In chapters 4 and 5, the preacher refers to Jesus in an unusual manner. The preacher refers to Jesus as the high priest, the great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. I want to thank Merrill Rose for that pronunciation. You worked on that. It was well done. We'll talk about that next week. Melchizedek, the, the priestly king of, of Salaam in, in Genesis, who, by the way, blessed Abraham and received a tithe from Abraham, the first mention of the tithe is in that text. And Melchizedek then becomes a prototype of Jesus, our priestly king. When you're writing to Jewish people, to Hebrews about high priests, they understand what the high priest does. His responsibility is twofold. He is to represent the people before God, and he is to represent God before the people. And they would know when you mention high priest, the high priest one day a year, Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, will enter into the Holy of Holies, that is the inner sanctum of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he's the only one who can go behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And on that day of atonement, he will take the blood of the lamb and he will offer sacrifice for the sins of the people but also for his own sins, because the high priest, though he may not know it, is also a sinner. 
And yet the writer tells us that that is no longer necessary for those of us who trust in Jesus because he is our high priest. He has offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, which by the way, watch this, now gives us full access to God. Because of the sacrificial love of God in Christ on the cross, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, which nobody can go in except one once a year, that curtain is torn in two, listen, from top to bottom. That means God has torn it, not humanity. And then the text says, therefore, which is, here's the action part, since then, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, hold fast to your anchor. Hold on to your confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tested as are we without sin. In other words, it's like the commercials you've been watching Jesus gets us. He put on our shoes. He put on human clothing. He knows your struggle. He knows my need. And so says verse 16, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. The Greek term there is with daring with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. In other words, what the writer, what the preacher is doing is he's saying in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of a time where many are resigning, he is encouraging the congregation to pray and be bold in our prayers. There's a reason that the only thing the disciples ever asked their rabbi, Jesus, to teach them was to pray. They never said, could you teach us to teach? Could you teach us to preach? Could you teach us to heal? They never asked that. They said, would you teach us to pray? Because they recognized that there was a correlation between his prayer life and the power of his ministry. Pray with boldness. I have to tell you, one of my pet peeves, and Sherry could tell you more if you're interested in my pet peeves, but one of my pet, pet peeves as a pastor is when someone comes to me, perhaps before a meeting, and says, Pastor, uh, would you get things started with a, a little prayer? And I've never really said it, but I wanna say, I sure won't. There are no little prayers. Peterson in his book, Eugene Peterson in his book, Working, uh, Working the Angles, says it like this, prayer enters the lion's den. That's bold. Prayer is, a, prayer is a, a bringing us without shoes before the holy where it's uncertain whether we'll even come back alive or sane. Says Peterson, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And he says this, I love this. He said, I'm not trying to be rude, but I'm saying that the pastor who is politely compliant with requests from the community for cut flower prayers forfeits 
his or her calling. And then he says this, many of the people we meet inside and outside the church think that prayers are harmless, but necessary starting pistols that shoots blanks to get things going. We suppose that the real action of the church is in our projects, our plans, our performance. It is blasphemy, he says, when pastors adjust their practice of prayer to accommodate these inanities. Our high priest has given us full access to the throne room. And so we don't come with little prayers. We come in awe and wonder, not like bureaucrats seeking a permit, but like needy children at midnight crying out in the night, knowing, knowing, knowing that we will be heard and comforted. I'm talking about bold prayers. Like, God, help, help my friend to get sober, and if you need me to intervene, enable me to do it. Like, God, heal my child of her disease. Like, Lord, take away my incessant need to be right. Bold prayers. God, help us to be more understanding and less judgmental. Jesus, help me to rid myself of greed and self-centeredness. Lord, take away my need to use people for my own benefit. God, help us to stop justifying violence and anger. Help me to give up my need to control. Enable your church to be more united, more loving, and less divisive. These are not little prayers. They're big, hairy, audacious prayers. Walter Wink, who was a Methodist theologian for many years, said biblical prayer is impertinent, persistent, shameless, and indecorous, it is unseemly. Biblical prayer is more like haggling at an outdoor bazaar than the polite monologues of the church. It was Karl Barth who said to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the chaos and dysfunction of the world. I'm talking about bold. Let me give you an example. We had a prayer meeting here on Wednesday night out in the front yard. I have a picture of this prayer meeting. You can't see to the sides, but there must have been two or 300 people who came. We were targeting one of our kids, one of our youth in our prayers who was hit by a car on her way home from school on Monday afternoon. Her name, please remember her, is Ellie Kate Turner. She was walking her bike across the road and it was an accident. Blind spot, Ellie, Kate, by the way, made her profession of faith here at this altar. She loves little babies. In fact, her ministry as of several months ago, you know what she does? She keeps the nursery, she helps with the nursery, which she was only able to do when she turned 13. She's 13 today. She's at Vanderbilt Children's Hospital this morning and on Tuesday, some of our mothers who were aware and sympathetic called and asked, can we, have a, can we have a prayer vigil? Melissa Wyatt led the way. And so we said, of course, 
We didn't want any media here, and so we didn't put it on Facebook. What we did was just organically, word of mouth, got the word out, and all these people came, teenagers everywhere. They showed up. Our youth staff helped to lead the prayer vigil, and they are our anchors, by the way. And we didn't, for once, just talk about prayer. We prayed. Somebody read scripture. Somebody led us in a pastoral guided prayer. And then organically, we didn't know if it would work or not. We just asked the group to self-divide into circles. And all you saw teenagers and parents interceding for Ellie Kate. and her, You didn't have to tell them how to pray. Just get them to pray. And just before the vigil started... I talked to Ellie Kate's parents on the phone. They were at the hospital. They're still there. And, then, and her dad said to me, get this, Pastor, the driver of the car is coming to the vigil, and it wasn't his fault. It was an accident, and he's torn up about it, as are we. He has a 10-year-old daughter himself. He's from Central America. He doesn't speak a word of English. And I've asked one of the officers in Brentwood who's bilingual to, to bring him to the prayer service. Would you have a minute to meet with him and talk with him? I said, John, I think I can do that. Jim, you were there. He came. We talked. And just before I got in my car to leave, I, I looked over at this man and he was surrounded by our people and they were ministering to him and I saw Jesus right in the middle. I saw the church at her best and I knew that our anchor was his anchor. There are no little prayers. Pray big. And big things can happen. I'm not talking about winning the lottery. I'm talking about winning souls and hearts. And one thing I've noticed that when we're faithful in earnest, bold prayer, it's like all of a sudden you begin to resemble your high priest who knows our need, feels our pain, and gives us full access to the Father. Last word. One of my favorite stories about Bishop Will Williman, who was for many years Bishop in North Alabama and before that 20 years Dean of the Chapel at Duke. It's been said, he's written maybe 50 books, it's been said of Will he's never had a thought that wasn't published. <laughs> he tells this story when he was a young pastor in Atlanta, he was chaplain on call at one of the hospitals. And he got a call one day to come see a Catholic woman who was in the latter stages of lung cancer. She was having a tough time. Oxygen, struggling to breathe, exhausted by the battle, the fight. And as he entered the room, he noticed that this woman was clutching with her hands a crucifix. She said it was a gift from my grandmother at the time of my confirmation. She told me it was carved by a monk in Europe. But for me, it's a symbol of my hope, my faith, it's my anchor. 
It was evident to Will that she was near the end, and he being respectful, knowing that she was Catholic and he was Protestant, Will said to her, Ma'am, would, like, would you like me to call a priest? And she held up that crucifix and said, No thanks, I already have one. And so do you. And so do I. He's my anchor. And not only do we have an anchor, we can be an anchor for somebody else because you have access and your witness can open the curtain for somebody else in need. That's the church at her best. May it be so to the glory of God in Jesus' name.